Welcome to the second part of the ladies section of this series and uh, before we look at that I just want to mention something I forgot this morning which is the FIC Together magazine is in the foyer and there's lots of uh, interviews and news about what's going on around different FIC churches so it's worth reading. There should be plenty of those uh, for you to take one if you haven't already. And then at this point, that's, that's really my only introduction. I'm going to hand over to Megan, and she will do the, the second part of what we started last time. time we saw that God called men and women to distinct roles in the home. So this time we're going to think about what about in the church. And I think today this is a very contentious issue in many circles. On the one end of the spectrum, we have those who feel that women should be completely silent in the church and may in fact even be unable to grasp certain spiritual things properly, let alone discuss them or teach them. For these people, their final authority seems to be their own prejudice. But on the other end of the spectrum are those who feel that women should be completely free from any restriction and encouraged to pursue any and all functions in the church that they feel called to fulfill. So for these people, their final authority seems to be a woman's own personal sense of calling or her own personal experience. Now very often, I have heard it said that this particular woman over here is a fantastic speaker, a great leader, has a fantastic grasp of scripture, and she preaches better than some or most men. So, the argument goes, why would God have gifted her in this way if she is not to be a pastor or teacher of both men and women in the church? And in fact, there have been times when I myself have listened to some men preach, none in this church, of course, Um, But there have been times when I have thought, you know what, I I know women who have studied more and could handle scripture better than this, so why not let them? And over the years, I have looked at the passages on women's roles in the Bible, and I have struggled with them at times. I have read not a few books and articles on this subject of women's roles in the church, and the understanding that I have come to that I think is making the most sense of how scripture deals with this topic for us as women is not one that I have arrived at easily, and nor does it come naturally to me. And you can ask Tim because he can verify that. But I do believe with all of my heart that if scripture doesn't stand in authority over me, as we said last time, then I will stand in authority over it. And not only on this topic but on any other topic that might unsettle me in Scripture. And since I am sinful, most things in Scripture are going to unsettle me at some point. So, here is just a bit of what Scripture says to us as women in the church. And I know I may be preaching to the choir here in our church fellowship, but I think it's important for us to know why, biblically, we hold this conviction in our church, even if we don't struggle with this. Because we shouldn't just hold a position, we should be able to defend it, and especially in a time when this is called into question in many churches. So you may remember that when we looked at the creation of women last time, we said that the biblical creation account affirms three things. 
It affirms the equal value of men and women. It affirms the full participation of men and women in God's world. And it affirms different roles for men and women. And we saw last time, especially with regard to home and to family. And I think it can be demonstrated that when we turn to the New Testament, we see the same three things affirmed with respect to men and women in the church. First, we see that the New Testament affirms the equal value of men and women in the church. And we can see that very clearly in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. Paul says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So Paul clearly says that if we are in Christ, we are all on equal standing as children of God. We are not somehow less God's children if we are women, or Gentile, or slaves for that matter. Instead, we are one in Christ. We are Abraham's children, we are joint heirs of the promise of salvation, and all that that means for our future. We are equally valued, we do not have a lower status. We are equally children and equally heirs. So that is never to be questioned. But notice what Paul says. He says we are one in Christ, not that we are the same in Christ. He is not abolishing our maleness or our femaleness. He is showing that we have equal standing when we come before God for our salvation and we take hold of his promises. But he is not abolishing gender or gender roles. And how do we know this? We'll look at one of his other examples, listed here, neither slave nor free. Now we know that many people in the early church were slaves, and they didn't cease to be slaves when they became Christians. They were, however, on an equal footing before God with those who were free in the church. So in the same way, we don't cease to be women or abandon our female roles when we are in Christ. But we women are on an equal footing with our brothers when we're standing before God. We are equally valued, equally God's children, and equally heirs. And remember, this was a culture where females often inherited less than males if they inherited at all. So this was saying something. So the New Testament is affirming the equal value of men and women in God's church. But second, we see that the New Testament affirms the full participation participation of men and women in God's church. Now contrary to what many people have said at different times about the Bible, women are celebrated and appreciated as full participants in the life of God's people in Scripture. And this was very, very countercultural. Women in biblical times and in biblical cultures were often not allowed to be full participants in anything. But in the Old Testament, we read of Ruth, who as a faithful foreigner was granted the privilege of being a foremother to Christ. We read of Deborah, a godly woman used by God to judge Israel and whose counsel and judgment was sought out by both men and women. 
We read of Huldah, a prophetess who was sought out by God's king and God's priests for wisdom and for guidance. We read of Esther, a faithful queen God used to save his people from annihilation. And then this pattern continues when we return to the New Testament. When Jesus rose from the dead, the first witnesses he chose to his resurrection were women. Jesus sent women to tell his disciples that he had risen. They were essentially the first evangelists, the first ones to bring the good news of Jesus' resurrection and of him conquering death. And Jesus expected his followers to believe the testimony of these women in a time and a culture that did not accept a woman's testimony as valid. So women fully participated in evangelism and in spreading this good news about Jesus. Then later in Acts, we see in chapter 2, verses 17 to 18, Peter quoting from Joel chapter 2, an Old Testament prophecy. It reads like this. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. And just for clarification, we are living in those days. So these passages here are verifying that God's spirit is poured out equally on men and on women, and both equally will prophesy. They both participate in the spirit-directed work. And we see that played out again later in Acts, in chapter 21, verse 9. Philip the Evangelist is listed as having four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And then later in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks to the gathered body, the church, about propriety in their worship services and the way things should be conducted. And in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 11, he assumes that women in the church gathering will both pray and prophesy. So women are participated as full and even vocal participants in the life of the church body and in the gathered church meetings. They're not simply spectators. And then I just want to quickly mention Romans chapter 16 too. And if you want to turn there quickly, um, you can feel free and just run your eyes down the list of people that Paul commends in Romans chapter 16. Because there, Paul affirms many women and their work in the church. So just glance down that list, Romans 16. In verse 1, he lists Phoebe as a deacon of the church in Cancrea, and she may, in fact, have been the bearer of this letter of Romans from Paul to the church in Rome. Then in verse 3, Paul lists Priscilla, who alongside her husband Aquila is listed as a fellow worker with Paul. And in Acts 18, this same Priscilla was involved in the private home instruction of Apollos, who became a godly preacher in Corinth and Achaia. In verse 12, you meet Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis. These are women Paul greets personally and commends to the church as women who work hard in the Lord. And in verse 7, Paul names a woman called Junia, a woman that he names as an apostle who had been in prison with Paul, suffering for her service to the Lord. So especially in conservative circles, we need to remind people that we are not saying that women are not fully valued and fully participating in God's church. Let it be clearly known, Scripture, Jesus, and the Apostle Paul affirm women 
and their ministries. I think Paul often gets charged with male chauvinism today, but we've seen how he publicly praised women, he served alongside women in the church, and he encouraged women to use their giftedness. Paul speaks in some places of what women cannot do, but he also treasures and praises the ministry that they are doing. So scripture clearly expects both men and women to be full participants in the life of God's church. Okay, so far, so good. Probably all of us as women have enjoyed those bits. But now comes the part that many women, including myself, find it at times harder to submit to. But if we want to be women of the word, if we want to show the watching world a living picture of God's good order in the home and in the church, and if we want to model the authority and submission that we see even within the Godhead itself, then we must submit to all of his word, even the hard words. And so next, we see that the New Testament affirms different roles, especially with regard to leadership for men and women in the church. We're just going to look at one of the two major passages where scripture places a restriction on a woman's role in the church. The other passage that we'll not look at tonight for sake of time is in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 33 to 36. But what we can just say in passing is that in 1 Corinthians, Paul is consistent with what he says in the passage we are about to read. We are going to look at 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 to 15, and you may want to turn there. The first thing for us to notice about this passage is where it fits in the wider context of the, of the book of 1 Timothy. This passage about women comes in the middle of Paul's teaching about public worship in the church. It is not just about husbands and wives or the home. Paul begins the chapter by urging that prayers be made for all people, and then he addresses a specific issue for the men in verse 8, where he cautions them against disputing and anger. And notice, in verse 8, Paul uses the word everywhere. He is not just addressing his comments to those in Ephesus, but for all churches. And then in verses 9 and following, he turns his attention to how we as women are to conduct ourselves in the gathered assembly of God's church. And here's what he says. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner." But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Paul begins by addressing the dress and behavior of women in the church. We are to dress with decency and propriety, or we could say modesty and discretion. We shouldn't be dressing to be enticing or to be flashy, but modestly and appropriately for women who love the Lord and who care about not causing our brothers in Christ to stumble. 
And this is a hard one at times for us to apply on our own, because in case you hadn't noticed, materialism and seductiveness are massive plagues in our culture. Everywhere you turn, we as women are encouraged to be showy or to be alluring to men in an inappropriate way. Sometimes I walk into some shops in despair because I'm convinced there's not a single thing in it that is actually appropriate for a Christian woman to wear. And girls, it can be hard for us at times to know what is appropriate and what a Christian brother might find enticing. So especially if you are a younger woman, you may need guidance on this one. You might not like this advice. But the best person you can ask to help you decide if what you're about to wear is decent or not may be your father or your grandfather. Trust their judgment. They love you. They want you to look nice. But they will not want you sending out the wrong signals to young men. They're a good help for you in this. And then in contrast to what we've just seen in society... Rather than putting our focus on our outward appearance, Paul encourages us to focus on our behavior, our good deeds. And then he homes in on a woman's behavior in the public gatherings of the church. And first, notice what Paul says women are to do. They are to learn. This is a clear affirmation of a woman's intellectual abilities, in case you needed one. And it shows a desire that women benefit from the same education and instruction as the men. Now, this would have been actually a huge advance on some forms of Judaism at the time, where some women were actually forbidden from learning. Well, in fact, all women in some forms of Judaism. There is an opportunity here, and even a mandate, for women to study, to learn, and, as we see in some other passages, even to teach, but all of that within the boundaries given in Scripture. And then next, notice the way in which women are to learn. They are to learn in quietness and full submission. What does that mean, and how do we do it? This is not ordering absolute silence from women. We have already seen that Paul expects full and even vocal participation from women in the church. Instead, it's referring to a woman learning peacefully rather than argumentatively. And we learn in submission to the men who are given the role of teaching in the church. Now again, this is not all women in submission to all men. We saw that when we looked at wives and husbands. Women submit in the church to what is being faithfully taught and to those who are called to faithfully teach it. So in this church, that would generally mean submitting to the eldership. And if as a woman this makes you bristle... Take note that in practice, most of the men in the church are called to the same submission because they're not given the responsibility to teach and they're not elders. Then at this point, Paul comes to the two restrictions that he places on a woman's role in the church. Women are expected to learn in the church meetings, but we are not permitted to teach men in the church. We as women are to learn in submission to the leaders, but we are not to assume or exercise authority over men in the church. And most scholars are agreed here that what is meant by teaching is referring to the authoritative and public teaching from the scripture which has been handed down to us. So what today we might call preaching. Paul is not saying that women cannot teach anyone in any context. 
He is not saying that women are incapable of teaching or of teaching well. In fact, in other places, he affirms women for their teaching or encourages women to teach in certain contexts. So what he's forbidding here is women teaching men in authoritative ways in the public gatherings of the church. Women simply cannot regularly teach men in authoritative positions without overturning God's principle of male headship. And as an aside, we can note the wisdom for holding the same principle in the church that God sets forth in the home. Because it would be impossible for women to teach and exercise authority over the men in the church without in some ways upending male leadership in the home. Because a woman who's exercising authority over men in the church may in fact be exercising authority over her own husband. And furthermore, the church is the family of God. And families from the beginning of creation were to be led by the male head. And it's maintaining that good order of male headship that God created, which is what Paul's concerned about here. But this concept of male headship has become abhorrent to our Western culture today, in case you hadn't noticed. As women, we are encouraged to break through every glass ceiling and overturn the male hierarchy. And even in the church, many people have argued that this passage is only referring to the culture in Paul's day, or only to the church in Ephesus. Because, they argue, surely God would not expect us to be so backward as to restrict a woman's role in 2014. Especially not when women now are so well-educated and good men are so hard to find. So they argue. But Paul does not appeal to culture for his decision here. Look at verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam appeals to creation. God's good creation. Before the fall, before the curse. From creation, God signaled an important difference in the roles of men and women. And it's only today that we think that different functions mean different worth or different value. Paul and scripture never indicate that. Scripture is perfectly at ease presenting an equality of persons alongside a distinction within roles. In fact, we see that in the Godhead. So Paul's first reason for this restriction on the role of a woman within the public gathering of the church is to appeal to God's created order. His second reason for this restriction he gives by appealing to the fall. Look at verse 14. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, unfortunately... Some people have used this verse to argue that women are more easily deceived than men. And then they argue that's why there's this restriction placed on women. Because they're actually intellectually inferior. But this does not make sense at all of the whole Bible. If this were true, that would mean that women were created inferior. And that calls into question the goodness of God's creation. Also, if women are more prone to being duped than men are, this would seriously cause us to question the wisdom of Scripture encouraging women to teach in any context. Why should women teach children or other women if we are that unwise? 
So I do not think Paul is actually calling into question the intelligence or the discernment of women here. He is simply stating the facts of the fall. And these facts have big implications. There's a New Testament scholar named Thomas Schreiner, and he argues that the sense of the phrasing here may imply that just as in creation Adam was formed first, in the fall Eve was deceived first. The serpent actually targeted Eve. In Genesis 3, we read that Adam was with her during the temptation, but the serpent chose to speak only to Eve. And Adam was the leader to whom God had given the command regarding the fruit. And Adam did not intervene. The serpent was actually subverting that pattern of male leadership set up by God at creation. And Eve fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. And so did Adam. But although Eve transgressed first, God approached Adam first after the fall. God reinstated his order of male headship and then held Adam primarily responsible for the sin passed on to the whole human race. And we saw that last week when Tim was preaching from Romans 5. So by referring here to Genesis 3 and the fall, Paul is giving the first and the best example of what happens when God's pattern of male leadership in the home and the church is undermined and ignored. And the verdict... Women, we are not to seize an authority not given to us, and men are not to abdicate the responsibilities given to them. And again, as we said last time, let's be clear, nowhere in scripture is it taught that male roles are more important than female roles. They are simply different. Every part of the body is valued in the Bible's description of the church and the home. Each part is necessary and each part has a work to do. Now, since the World Cup is upon us, forgive the football analogy, ladies, but perhaps we can think of it like a football team. Every player on the team has an important and a vital role. Each player is necessary. But not every player is a striker, and certainly not every player is called upon to be the captain. The captain isn't a more important player than the rest of the team, can't really do much without the rest of the team. But he has a distinct role from the rest of his team members because additional responsibility is placed on his shoulders. And it's the same for us in the church. Every member, male and female, have a vital role to play. Each member is an important part of the team or the family. But not every member, male or female, is called to fulfill that role of captain or in the church, elder teacher. So again, those reasons for the two restrictions that are placed on women's roles are twofold. First, God's creation order. God made Adam first, and by doing so, he ordained his leadership role in the home and thus also in the church. And then second, the fall. Paul cites the first human example of the roles that God set up at creation being upended, and he reminds us of the dire consequences. So these are Paul's and the Holy Spirit's reasons for male headship in the church. So remember, we as women are encouraged to be full and vocal participants in the life of the church, but the roles of teaching men 
and exercising authority over men are reserved for the men God calls to lead the church. And then finally, just a quick word about verse 15, because this verse often causes confusion for women. What does Paul mean, we will be saved through childbearing? Now remember, Paul has just made a distinction in the roles for men and women within the public gathering of the church. In verse 15, I think he's encouraging women to keep within their proper roles and value those God-given roles. Childbearing is probably the most notable difference he could have used between the roles of men and women. That difference isn't limited to any culture or any time. God ordained us as women only to bear children and men only to head the church. So these are differences that are rooted in the created order. Paul isn't saying that all women will have children. Because remember last time we saw that Paul placed a high value on the single state. Nor is he saying that any woman will actually be saved by having children. And I think that is likely why he adds these virtues of continuing in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. He adds that on to childbearing. These virtues and maintaining our proper roles in the home and the church, with or without children, will be evidence of our obedience to Christ. And our continued obedience is evidence that we have truly experienced God's salvation. So Paul is simply using childbearing as an example of a significant role given by God to women and as a representation of us as women joyfully accepting the vital roles which are assigned to us by God. So we mentioned earlier that the Bible's celebration of women and their full participation in the life of God's church was countercultural to the time when it was written. Well, the Bible is always countercultural. In the ancient time, it was countercultural to grant women full participation in any public gathering. In our time, it is countercultural to place any restriction on a woman's role in any public gathering. But scripture always stands above culture. It always seeks to reform fallen culture. And it's always pointing us back toward God's perfect design and away from our cultural conditioning. God has set up male headship in the home and in the church. And this is a pattern that God intends for all times and for all cultures. And if this doesn't sit well with us or with our own culture, it is our hearts and our culture that need to be reformed. And I think there's one other point here that we should remember, because this helps us to answer those who criticize the church for times when certain men have led it badly. Bad male leadership is not corrected by unbiblical female leadership in the church, no matter how gifted those women might be. Bad male leadership is corrected by godly male leaders. Being a man alone is not a sufficient qualification for teaching and leading in the church. This restriction on women is not saying that God calls all men and no women to be teachers and leaders. In 1 Timothy and in Titus, God gives a whole raft of qualifications for teaching and leadership roles in the church. Being a man might be a necessary qualification, but on its own it's not a sufficient qualification. 
Only certain godly and biblically qualified men are called to teach and lead all members in God's church. And we as women are to submit to their leadership. And this isn't actually a new way for God to work. For God to call out only certain people according to his will to fulfill certain tasks. In the Old Testament, priests didn't set themselves apart for serving God as his priests. An individual Israelite didn't decide that he had the giftedness or the desire to fill a priestly role and then take that role on for himself. Only those that God had set apart according to God's decision, and in that case it was those from Aaron's line, from the tribe of Levi. Only those men were allowed to serve in priestly roles. And in the same way, we as women can't decide that because we have certain teaching or leading gifts, or because we have the desire to teach and lead, that that means that we are called to teach and lead over men in the church. Now, some women today may say to you that they have been called by the Holy Spirit to be a pastor. This should immediately cause you to raise an eyebrow. Because that woman may be gifted to teach. She may be gifted to lead. And she may have a desire to do those things. But the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired this passage that we just looked at in Timothy. And this passage places a clear restriction on a woman's calling to teaching and leading in a church. She is not to be teaching and having authority over men. And you cannot be a pastor without doing those two things. The Holy Spirit will never direct an individual to a calling that in any way contradicts the clear teaching of the scripture he inspired. If a woman has teaching and leading gifts, God has given plenty of contexts in which she can use those gifts. But to usurp an authority that is not ours to hold is to go against scripture and to disobey our God. And if, as women, we see a need for godly male leaders, and yes, there is a great need in our time and our culture, then let's pray to God to raise them up. The answer is not to try to fill those shoes ourselves. We've seen that the New Testament affirms the equal value of men and women in the church, that women are gifted by God and granted the full participation in the life of God's church, but also that the New Testament affirms some different roles for men and women within the life of God's church. And these are timeless principles And we have to make timely applications of them in our time and in the decisions we make regarding how we function as a church and what we as individual women will do for God's kingdom. And in a moment, Tim is going to say a word or two about that. But I will leave you with a quote from a wise and godly woman whose words I hope will characterize all of our hearts as women. This is from Dorothy Kelly Patterson. She says, A wise woman would rather give up an opportunity to show and use her giftedness if by using that giftedness she would risk bringing dishonor to God's word and thus to him. With God's help, I will neither seek recognition nor demand higher office, but I will make every effort to serve him who is Lord according to his terms. I may seem to be oppressed, but in reality I am freed. I am under his protection." My attitude must be to maintain a servant's heart. 
My goal is to be obedient to the biblical mandate. My reward will come from him. A woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. This is literally a word or two. Just a couple of brief comments uh, to say that, really, to say what you all know, which is that in this church, Megan has spoken about the principles that Paul has set out. In this church, the way we apply those principles is by giving only man the responsibility of eldership. Now, as Megan has also pointed out, it's clear from the New Testament that there were women deacons in the early church. And that makes sense, because the role of deacons is to care for the practical needs of the fellowship. The role of deacons is not to teach or to exercise authority. Now, it's true that we may ask a male deacon to preach sometimes, but that's not connected to his role as a deacon. And so then, while we have no lady elders in this church, we do have lady deacons. That's the the simple uh, breakdown of how we try to apply those principles. And I just add in terms of my own conviction on this, my conviction is that where scripture says no to ladies' involvement, I am certainly going to stand by that, however unpopular it is. And when scripture says yes, I'm going to be equally careful to involve ladies, however unpopular that is. And both things are unpopular to different people. I did announce at some point that Megan and I were going to share this talk, so there, you've just had my contribution to the talk. (laughs) 